The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Good evening. It is great to be here. I know I say every year just about the same thing, but I promise you I'm not trying to lie or be deceitful in it. I really do look forward to being here when I have the opportunity. This is absolutely one of the highlights of my year. I've come to know many of you more personally and got to spend time with you. I consider so many of you family members almost, at least friends and good friends at that. So it's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, the supper that I was fed tonight, can't see everybody, uh, was wonderful, so I appreciate that as well. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate Bob. Uh, you all don't know how that worked out. Uh, Bob came to Ironathan. It's been probably 12 years ago, something of that sort anyway. And uh, he was invited by Cliff. And he came down, and he and I met. And to me, our friendship has gone beyond he and Cliff almost, to a point at least. And I love and appreciate him. I love the preaching that he does. And I hope that you appreciate uh, that preaching. One, it's a standard of truth. There's no argument about that. That's a must. But on top of that, he's got a talent. He's got a love for you all that I know I can see and I'm familiar with. So when he and I are kind of talking back and forth and throwing ideas off one another, if somebody I can turn to, definitely I know that you can have very similar confidence in that. Uh, I want to tell you as a, a forerun, uh, kind of a warning here right now tonight, I don't generally use PowerPoints very often, so there may be some problem there. I've got an absolutely straight out of the box brand new Bible tonight, and so I'm not going to be as familiar with it. We're going to do about 1,000 times more flipping and flopping than I typically do. I generally go to a text, sit down, allow that text to lead itself, and we go that way. But tonight we will, of necessity, be moving around the Bible quite a bit and so I decided last night, pretty late, to go ahead and add the PowerPoint to it. Uh, not that I don't want you to use your Bibles. Please, I encourage you to do that. Uh, I'll be in a new one, so I won't be moving too quickly. But I would encourage you to do that. And then there'll be certain texts that we're going to get to, and we're going to have to sit down in them for a moment. And you certainly need to see those longer texts. And in every case, even if I put only one or two verses on the screen, many times I'll put a reference up there of the context that you need to read. So if you're taking notes, you can say, well, he said verse 4 and 5, but I may also have down there that the true context is 13 verses or something like that, so be aware. When Bob reached out to me this time, as I said already, I, I was excited about that, as I, I, I am typically, always. I try to be at least. Uh, but he generally reaches out. I don't know if you know the backstory to this. Usually he'll either say, would you like to come? Of course, I jump on that like a dog on a bone. And then he'll say, well, what week can you come? And depending on what date I pick, that's the subject that gets assigned. Don't have a lot of control in that area. Other times, he'll do the back opposite, as I call it that. And he'll say, well, here's a series of topics where they're available. You're one of the first I've called. What do you want to preach? And according to what I say, he'll say, well, then this is your date. And there's not a lot of flexibility there. So... But this year, and I don't know if he or the elders or who all was involved, this year Bob reached out, and I'm not direct quoting him, I don't think, but he reached out and he said, do you want to come? Obviously. And uh, he said, well, this year is open topic. Completely open topic. And I thought, boy, that is exciting. You know, you tell a preacher he can preach anything he wants, 
Uh, it excites me at least. There's some freedom, some flexibility. Uh, oftentimes, I'll tell you the truth, what we'll do, we'll preach our favorite sermon uh, or we'll go back and do something that we've done before that we're familiar with or something that we're studying at the moment that's kind of exciting us. That's what we'll do. Uh, but when you say open topic, that's what you're getting. Truth be known. But in this case, he came out with a little bit more. It's open topic. So long as, and this is the part I know I'm not quoting, so long as it's not a controversial, hot-button topic, uh, has something to do with what's going on in the world today that affects the church, uh, morality issues, and he named several different examples of that. And so I said, well, I'll have to get back with you on that. And so what I honestly did, I got, I got home, I don't know how many hours passed in that, but I got home and I thought, you know, there's an awful lot of sermons I'd love to preach that would fit into that criteria, that would fit that, that bill. And there are a number of them that I actually sat down in my office and kind of jotted down on sticky notes. What about this? What about that? Some of that was familiar. Some of it was going to be new ground, but I got excited. And then there was one more topic that came up that I jotted down on that sticky note, and I thought, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you really don't want to get into that. That's, as we say in the South, a can of worms you don't want to open. That's an area that, uh, although it may be uh, very well accepted inside of these four walls, is extremely controversial outside of these walls. And I kind of hesitated, and I kept going back, well, you got all these other choices. And then finally, in my mind, I thought to myself, you know what, there's one scripture that will help me make a decision. And that scripture is Jude, verse 3. I've got it on the back screen behind me. It's in the New King James translation. It says this. It says, Beloved, uh, while I was very diligent to write unto you concerning the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting that you, earnest, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And what I got out of it was this. I said, you know what Jude wanted to do? Jude had an opportunity to write a letter, to preach. And he, out of that opportunity, said, I know exactly what I want to do. I mean, it's obvious. I would love to preach concerning the common salvation. Now, that meant a lot because by the time Jude writes, being one of the later, if not one of the latest, New Testament letters, that reference kind of, kind of sort of turns and says, well, you know, he's saying by now the faith has been delivered. That's what he says. The scriptures have been revealed. God's inspiration has come out and it's being penned and it's being copied and the scribes are taking care of such. And so Jude's saying, you know what? I'd love to preach on the common salvation because it is common. We know about it. It's available. But in the time of writing as well, the church was still in its infancy. And so you got to consider that Jude was also probably saying something like this. You know, it's amazing. The mystery of God, how God brought both Jew and Gentile to the church so that we could be unified, so that we could have a common salvation. And so I can imagine I, I was the same on all the other pieces of sticky note. I was on fire about those. But I also heard what he said here. And this is not Jude speaking, but God. He said he saw it necessary. That is, there was no way around it. It was necessary that he would write unto them concerning, not the common salvation, but reminding them to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered. What Jude says, and I've studied this book recently, it's uh, 25 verses, I think I spent 16 weeks 
uh, studying it with the Ironathan folks. Uh, but what Jude is saying is you don't have a choice but to take a stand. You don't have option in this. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of obligation that every child of God's should be willing to earnestly, that is much intent, contend, that is fight for the faith. And so after kind of looking at that, reading that for a few moments and hesitating, I finally took the sticky notes I had and just kind of raked them off. And I said, well, this is it. Because I don't know that this subject, I'm confident with Bob, but I don't know that this subject that we have to get to tonight, and I said have to, is talked enough about. Because when you're talking about hot-button, controversial, when you're talking about topics that are definitely relatable to much of the world to which you and I as Christians oftentimes might be seen to be standing in opposition to, there is probably very few right now that are as controversial, as hot-button as the one I put on the screen. I don't expect that you can all see that. I can barely see. But here's what we have. We're talking about contending with confusion when it comes to homosexuality, gender identity, and transgender sins. I don't want to preach that, but it's necessary. So everything that we do tonight, I want you to understand that as I preach and as we work together through this as, as listeners, as Bible students, I want you to understand that I do not have the liberty nor the authority to say anything that's not in Scripture. It's similar to what Peter said, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. If any man speak, let him do after or as the oracles of God. That is, Peter is saying to us through inspiration that if you're going to teach, preach, speak, whatever you call that, in the name of God, you must use the word of God to do such. So I don't have the ability nor the liberty uh, in that to say, well, I just want to sit down and talk with y'all about what I believe and what I think and what I suppose we should do and should not do. Scriptures must lead that. At the same time, reflecting on what Jude said about necessary to say, we also understand what Paul told Timothy. Very familiar text. Everything I select tonight was very intentional, very familiar. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, Paul said, Preach the word of God. Be instant in that, in season, out of season. Now, the New King James, I think, says something to the effect of to convince, to reprove, to rebuke with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why is that necessary, Paul? Because there's going to come a time, and I'll tell you, the time is, is already here, in which people will not adhere to these things. They will not accept that. They'll have itching ears and they'll bring teachers. King James says heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So we must preach the word of God. In another case, I thought about other scriptures. We won't go through all of them, but this one here we must. What we find in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, which says sanctify, I'll probably quote the King James as much as the new King James on the screen, but sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts be ready always to give it a fence, answer, defense of the reason, the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. What is Peter saying in this case? He's saying you have to defend the gospel. You have to be willing to stand up for God. 
And so what happens, and I've seen this, this is what's happening in the world, it's happening in the religious world, big quotations around that, and sadly it's happening in the church. When it comes to many sins that have become more and more prevalent or common in the day, a lot of times our attitude toward it is, it's not affecting me, I would not participate in such, nor would my family, so therefore, so long as they do what they do on the outside, I can accept it. Neither Jude nor Paul to Timothy, neither Peter in either case, give us that liberty. Now, I'll admit this as well. Subjects like these oftentimes come with more heat than light. And I've prayed to God on a number of occasions and thanked my God that when Bob called, I didn't say, I'll take June the whatever. See, that would have been Pride Month. And if I would have tried to address this during June, I would have come with a sword. I would have been upset because I was. I would have been angry. I would have been discouraged. I, I, no telling what I would have done, how I would have addressed it. Thank you, God. It's August. So let's try tonight to shed much more light than heat on the subject. Let's try tonight to be careful, to be cautious in what we do and what we say and the attitude uh, through which we examine the things that we do, okay? I'm going to skip through a little bit for time. Now, we've basically got four ideas we're going to try to get to. We, we must get to a couple at least of them. But the first thing we're going to notice is what I'm going to call God's desire. What is God's desire, and this will be in general, but also pointed toward this particular series of sins, what is God's desire for being? And we'll be talking about concerning the salvation, if you hadn't figured that. Second from that, we must go over to God's design. And that is, what is God's original design, and is it changed? That'll be a question we have to ask. Has it or is it been changed? What is God's original design concerning marriage? concerning the purpose for mankind even being on earth and what is his intended purpose for us, not all the way through to eternity, but at least up until that point. And then thirdly, we'll go to the one that's probably the most difficult. There will be a few passages you may not have ever related to this, but we'll look at also the announcement. That is, what does God say about such sins? How does he desire to handle those? And what is ultimately the Fate, if you want to call it, that's not the right word, but the outcome for individuals, any individual, by the way, who lives in sin. And then we'll get, hopefully, and Lord willing, to God's direction. What does God want us, me, to do? And I think this will be appropriate for any sin, but obviously we're focused on the main one tonight. So looking at God's, if you will, desire. What does God desire? Well, I put a summary up before all of these. Even if we have to skip some scripture, we will. But the first desire and the main desire of God is that all men should repent and be saved. Okay? So if my attitude or if anyone's attitude about anyone who lives in a sin, maybe one that we don't participate in, is that, well, you know, they'll get what's coming to them. That's the wrong attitude because that is anti-biblical and more importantly, it's anti-God. So God's desire, God's will for all men everywhere is to be saved. We have proof for that. Second Peter chapter two and verse three and verse nine, I'm sorry, is one of those most recognizable to us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but watch this, but is long suffering to usward or toward us, 
New King James, not willing that any should perish, but that all, I think that's the biggest word in the whole scripture, but that all should come to repentance. So what's God's desire? Doesn't matter what sin anyone's living in. God's desire is for them to repent and come to him. And he's actually, according to this, to an extent, giving them some opportunity for that. In the next place, another text that's very familiar to as well, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, we have this record. For it is a good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord and our Savior who desires all men to be saved and, we'll key on this later, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see that? Some implication is there that they may be sinning, and they are, or failing because they just don't know truth. Perhaps, not all cases, but maybe not. And that God is desiring of them to be saved, and the only way that is in force accomplished is if they come to the truth. Guess who gets to help them with that? You can raise your hand. You ought to. We do. So that's a part of what God and His desires are. Now, you can add to that, and we'll go into this one, so please turn with me. Turn with me to these more lengthy texts. We'll have to see them. I want you to see them at least on your page. Again, brand, absolute brand new Bible, so it'll take me longer than you most likely. But look with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, in this case, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at, in this case, particularly verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Here's what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, we've learned that. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, we'll put an asterisk by that in a moment, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, revelers, no extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. So what's God done? He's given us a list of sin. This is not the lengthiest list. There are upwards of 21 in some other passages that necessarily don't include these. But he's given us a listing of some sins that is not conclusive, but is not also exclusive. And it names off several, matter of fact, I believe all of them in verse 9 are sexual in nature. Look at what he named out. He first said that those who were fornicators, Greek word pornea or some form of that, fornicators will not inherit. What is a fornicator? That is unmarried individuals who participate in sexual activity that they are prohibited from doing. That's that one. The next one that lined up with that is nor, he says, idolaters. Hold that one for a moment. And then he says adulterers. What is an adulterer? That is married individuals who are participating in sexual activity outside of the bounds of that marriage that they are not given liberty to by God. Nor he mentions those who are homosexuals. What is that? Two men, two women. That sort of thing. Sometimes nowadays it's two men, two women, and all the men and women they can include. Nor sodomites. That one is more clear. That is, the homosexual act generally reflects more on the male and it reflects more on the giver, not the receiver. Moving on from that. What does idolatry have to do with that? In many cases, historically, biblically, idolatry involved sexual sins was a part of the worship. 
So it's not out of place. As a matter of fact, many in Jesus' day and beyond, before, I should say, before that, prior to it, participated in many of these sins, not just because they were sinners, they were, not just because they were evil, wicked people, some were, but many because the gods, that's with a small g and a long s, had them to worship that way, so they believed. So they would go to the temple and participate in activities like this, which stood completely against God. You say, well, what a list of people. And, and I'm thankful to God that he didn't limit it to that. We read across all of them, but there are others that are listed there uh, also that are guilty, the thieves, the covetous, such, so any of us could be involved in some of that. Maybe not the other, but that. Not inherit the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God that Paul, by inspiration, did not stop writing. This is again about the intention of God. Paul told us in the next verse, verse 10, concerning those specific sins, he went on and added to that, and such as were some of you. Now you've got to understand, the Corinthian church was made up of Corinthian people. Corinth and Ephesus were twin cities, similar to Las Vegas or anything else we might have around today, where there was a lot of wickedness, vulgarity, sexual activity, you name it, was going on. A rough place to be. The church often reflected some of that. But see, Paul named off some of these sins, many of which were repulsive to him and us, and he said, but some of you were those. Why aren't they now? He said, because you were washed, baptized, because you were separated from that, and then you were sanctified, that's the meaning of that word, and because you've been justified, you were made just by God, not by men. They got away. Now that's the wonderful, blessed thing about any sin is that the opportunity, so long as eternity has not turned, stands for us as individuals to go away from that and to allow the blood of Christ to do these three activities in verse 10 to remove us from such. So what is God's desire? That all men everywhere would be saved? That all men everywhere would come to repentance? That all men everywhere would be taught truth? And that all men everywhere would be washed, sanctified and justified by him alone. That's what his desire is. So that's kind of that. What about God's design? What about the design that God set forth? What did God think? Well, one of the scriptures is, is the one we just read that has something to do with that. But I want to take you back now and think about what God's design was. And I kind of put on the screen here, I, I realize you can't see it from the back perhaps, but God's design is he made them male and female. You know, I, I did a lot of research. By the way, if you're going to preach a subject like this, just understand your Google search is going to take a hit. I mean, I don't know what Google thinks about me right now, but it, I'm going to have to do a clean, a history, whatever, because I'm getting things that I'm not looking. God's design is male and female. Now, a lot of times that's, that's about all I hear. Someone will say, well, man, it's obvious. He made male and female. He made husband and wife. There's your argument. That's not anywhere near all God said. That proves principle and point, no argument. It obviously is fact, but that's not where all this is. But it is where it begins. So go back with me now to Genesis chapter 1, please, for just a few moments. This is one of those situations where 
I'm going to have to be selective. I was selective up on the screen, but I'm going to be selective as well as we read just because of time. I, I understand what I probably only got about three and a half hours uh, at this point left. Uh, and you may not have that much time, so we'll do what we can. But look with me, beginning Genesis chapter 1. We'll just read verses 27 and 28 because it does make the point. Here's what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Well, that's an argument within itself. No argument there. But God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what is God in general saying to them? He's saying, I made male, I made female. He's saying their duty in life is to come together, we'll see in the next chapter and the following, to come together in life as husband and wife, male, female, and to procreate, that's a high topic word, to say to have babies, to replenish the earth. Now in the very next chapter, which is chapter 2, if you just look across the page, for me at least, in that, look into chapter 2, beginning reading in verse 15. We've got to read a little bit more in this. And then God took the man, that's Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eat of it, thou shalt surely die. Now that turns out to be fact. It turns out to lean more toward the spiritual than the physical, but it's still fact. And the Lord God said, It is not good, verse 18, for man to be alone. For I will make unto him a helper comparable. I think the ESV uh, says help suitable. Do they use suitable? Uh, King James used help meet. This kind of meets middle ground right there. It's what it is. I'm going to make somebody that's much like them but very different who can assist and who can help. I would say a better way of saying that is who can actually complete them. Not just in every way, but in many ways that are only, uh, only completable, if that's the word, such as procreation, by those two. You keep up the reading a little bit farther. It says, And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air. He brought them forth, in verse 19, and Adam to see what we call them. And whatever Adam called them, every living creature, his name it was. And Adam gave the names of the cattle, the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. And Adam, for it was not found for him a helper comparable. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed it up in the flesh in its place. And the rib in which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman, and he brought her to Adam. And then Adam said, verse 23, For this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, verse 24. I got 24 on here? Yeah, 24. A man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now let me give you a quick tip. I did a wedding one time. I was asked to read one scripture, select a scripture of my choice. I chose that. In a wedding situation, don't read verse 25. It'll put you in a bad spot. And that's, that's what I did. But what are they supposed to do? He creates male and female. He brings them together as a help comparable, help suitable. 
and his instruction to them was to become married and to become one flesh. Now again, there's so much that could be said about that, but there's a sense in which I've not thought about as much, but when my daughter Juliana was born almost 22, 21, 22 years ago, that was one flesh. Consummation coming together of us. Cameron the same later, one flesh. So that's what he said. Now, the question then arises, did Adam and Eve, one, did they take up those roles, and did they understand it, and did they do it? Genesis chapter 4, just a page or so over, for me at least. And Adam knew, underline that word in your mind, knew, K-N-E-W, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Verse 2, and she bore again. And this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of the sheep and Cain was the tiller of the ground. Verse number 24, I think it is, 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and he bore a son and named his name Seth. Now what do we get? Well, he's got three sons, Cain, Abel, Seth. Many other sons and daughters he has as well, but those three named. And how did they come about? Only when a male and a female, then called a husband and a wife, came together under a binding agreement before God, and that consummated in the procreation of the earth and the knowing or knowing of his wife. Now that plays a big role into what God desires and what God designed, but it also will play a role in later what God denounces. So let's keep going with this. Now, what has changed? That's the question. You know, some people will say, well, you know, you can show me those scriptures all you'd like. And they may even claim to have a deep respect or love for God or the Bible. But, you know, that is the beginning. That is the Garden of Eden. That is so long removed from what, where we are. And so, you know, what, what should we do with that? Well, the thing is, nothing has changed. By the time we get to the New Testament and Jesus speaks on the subject, which he was talking about, we often say, well, here's a passage, Matthew 19, 1 to 9, on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And the controversy comes in in 9 and how it's appreciated and how it's approached and what the limits are and the scenarios. And absolutely a great text for understanding that and for examining that. But the real truth is, if... Men and women would learn to appreciate and respect verses 1 through 6, 9 would not be as much of an issue. Because what Jesus did was he stood here, we won't read it all because we've got about 35 slides left, but what Jesus did was he stood there and said from the beginning it was not so. Why, Jesus? Because as he quotes in the context, he says in the beginning here, can you tell me I had a little funny button on here? He says, it is made, he made them male and female, and he said, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined his wife. What's the reason? Procreation, basically. Not possible outside of the boundaries of what God designs. And then this part right here, verse 6 of the context, Jesus said, so then they are no longer twain to but are now one flesh. He adds to that, therefore what God had joined together, let not man separate. Great translation there. King James Version, I think, gives a 
lesser than uh, understandable translation, but in some sense a better one. Separate is, is, is what it is. Let not man, King James says, put asunder. I think the idea there, not only, please don't quote me from your notes, because I'm going to say not only in this mind disclaimer, not only includes the marriage there, obviously, but could very well back up to the context to say you can't put asunder God's law either. You can't change God's design. You can't change God's desire for man. So let not man put asunder. Now, what about the, God's denouncement of this? We've got to move like a freight train. What about God's denouncement of this? Well, we've already read across one of the scriptures we'll get to in just a moment. But the thing is, there are three points to this. Number one, God is clear. He's always clear, as a matter of fact. Uh, there is not nearly as many gray areas as man would like to find. Now, there are things that the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29 21, we don't necessarily always understand. But God himself is clear. His word is clear. And so if you go back to the text we read a moment ago, if God said, and this is where we got to disclaim something, God said that sins such as fornication, idolatry, homosexuality, and sodomy were sins, guess what they are? Sins. Now the ESV, I believe, you can quote me or know this, I believe leaves out the homosexual part of it. Now it doesn't leave the thought out that I can see. Check me on that right quick. Don't leave the thought out, but maybe it translates the word different. That's just a different uh, manuscripts and, and such as that. I think uh, ESV based on the NU and the majority text or Texas Receptus more used for the others. That's neither here nor there. It is in there. Well, thanks. I apologize to anyone that, that I just lied to. How about that? This is serious. This is what God said. But guess what someone can argue with this? Well, you know, God was just throwing out sins in general. I mean, he just named a few things. And don't forget, preacher, he said you could be saved from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But God wasn't coming out of left field with something that was so new that man couldn't understand. You go back in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 22. I've got 20 through, 22 through 30. That's one of those places where the context of it matters. But Genesis, Leviticus, I should say, chapter 22... Uh, the beginning of the reading is verse, I mean, chapter 18, I'm sorry. Verse 22 is the main verse. That's what we'll see here. 18 and 22, here's what it says. If I can find 18, it's on there. There it is. It says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Why? It is an abomination. Now, if you want to keep your reading, keep going through verse 30. I'll give you some clue, some insight to this. He said that verse 22 is an abomination. Verse 23 actually lists a male getting with an animal and a female doing the same. Now that would be, you know, horrible. But you see, God doesn't see them as being any different almost. They're both abominations. He encourages the brethren there by verse 30, children of Israel, to keep the ordinances, verse 30 beginning, to not commit any of these abominable things. God prohibited it then. It is an abomination. What is an abomination? The basic word, or this, to boil it all down, the word itself, that tie ball, I don't know what that is. 
It means to hate something to the point you're disgusted by it. That's God now. We ourselves must follow after God. Leviticus chapter 20, uh, the next page or so. Oh, me. Verse 13. If a man lies with a male, he lies with a woman. Both of them shall commit an abomination and shall surely be put to death. God prohibits. Deuteronomy chapter 22, similar idea. If a woman wears anything that pertains to a man or a man to a woman, that in itself is another abomination. Now, I heard someone argue one day, so I say that's why a woman should never wear pants. Come on. Men, men, men in Jesus' day wore skirts. Don't, don't start that. But the idea is there that in God's eyes there is a staunch difference between a male and a female and a difference should be existing between how they look and if that pertains to how they dress, what makeup they put on. God sees that. Now, I understand culture can change some things, but it's still clear that if I dress up in a skirt with long hair and earrings, and, then I could be accused of being a woman. Wouldn't change it. Nor is the opposite. It is an abomination. Deuteronomy 23 talks about being emasculated, how that that within itself would prohibit them from being in the assembly. The word emasculated, or uh, emasculated, I can't even say it, uh, castrated. King James says to have the stones crushed. You can take that for what you'd like. Abominations. Removing, separating from the assembly. Genesis 19, 1 to 13. Can I come back tomorrow or something? This is the account of Lot. Lot goes into Sodom. Long story short, he goes into Sodom. He becomes to one extent a part of Sodom. Now, thankfully, God doesn't see. God sees him for what he is. He sees his heart. He sees some difference there. But at the end of the day, he lost his wife. We don't know what come of his children or anything of the family, but we know he lost his wife. We do know this. While he was there and the angels came to get him out, they come in, and according to the text right here, before they lay down, that is, before they went to bed, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and from every quarter surrounded the house. They said they were there, watch it, and they called Lot and said, Where are the men who came into you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. Remember when we said something about Adam and Eve knowing? knowing? That's not familiarity. That's sexuality. They wanted to have a homosexual encounter with these angels. They thought they were men. According to what we read here, it was common among that day. Somebody says, well, you know, I even heard someone say, well, what about now? You know, uh, I heard someone say the other day, several things I was looking up. They said, well, the sin of Sodom was pride. It was. They said, well, the sin of Sodom was uh, a lack of hospitality. <laughs> no, I don't think that touch tops out of the bottom of it. But the sin of Sodom, according to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, is, is fairly clear. Turning Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned the destruction, making them example for all them that live after them ungodly. And then we get down to uh, this, I skipped and told you that, but we get down to Jude. A study of Jude would do any of us well because Jude makes absolutely clear one of the main things that was going on in the eyes of God is that they were, quote, given over New King James to sexual immorality, fornication, and that that involved strange flesh. You see, fornication is 
two people outside the bounds of marriage hadn't been bound by marriage is a sin. Adultery is people who are bound by marriage that step outside that marriage is a sin. Guess what? You can fornicate as a homosexual, see? You're actually fornicating as an adulterer. It's the root. It's the action behind. And Jude is clear that that is one of the things. Has God been consistent? Yes, he's been consistent. Throughout the old, throughout the new, he's been consistent. These scriptures as well list such as that. He's been completely consistent. But here's our question for tonight. We had to miss so much. By the way, go back and read Romans 18, or 1, 18 to 32 in your own time. The end of that text lets us know that it is not only those who are guilty of such, but those who find pleasure in it are guilty as well. So for us to say, well, as long as it's just them, or for us to uh, sit down and, and watch a movie and laugh, ha, oh, it's funny, it's funny. That, no, it's not. It's not funny. It's sad. God has been considerate. This text right here refers particularly to the eunuchs, but also is related to other abominable situations. But he lets those people know that his doors are open for them. Not in their sin, but from their sin. You know, we've oftentimes, a uh, preacher will say, well, you know, we're going to sing number whatever, just as I am. Well, just as I am. No, no, you come as you are willing to change willing to repent, willing to do and uh, to act in ways that are God-like, that are godly. And that's what God allows. Remember in verse 11, Paul told them, such as were some of you. You know, I don't, I don't know all these situations, but I, I heard about one before services, which I appreciated that for sure. But I know about certain situations where people who were formerly adulterers are now faithful members of the church. I know people who were drunkards, who were drug addicts. I know there are those who were homosexual. I know one man who at one point was uh, put in prison for pedophilia, abusing a child, a member of the church, faithful as can be. Everyone can change. So long as the changes they make are done in God's way. So we come down and round all this out. What's God's desire? That's obvious. Everyone to be saved. What is God's design? Yes, he made it male and female in the beginning, husband and wife to procreate. That's the only possible way to honestly and truly do that. It's the only right way to do that. And God still stands behind it. The things that were abominable to him in the old were still abominable to him in the new. And it's our duty and our uh, outright command that we should stand for truth in ourselves as well as what we represent to others. So what must we do? I had a ton of things to say about that, but I come back to this scripture right here, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. Sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. Be ready always to give a defense, an answer, the reason, the hope was in you, and meekness and fear. There's several things that need to be done. Number one, you've got to make Christ your Lord. I get that's been so denominationalized and so abused that it scares, it scares me to death, but it's true to one extent if it's understood. In order for a man or woman to be saved for their sin, Jesus Christ has to be their Lord. He said, sanctify him as that. Set him apart and say, no matter what the world is, no matter what I am, I want to be set apart as having Christ to be my Lord. That is, he leads every step 
of my life. He said, be ready always. What do you mean? You better be ready to learn. In order to answer biblical questions, there's only one resource to go to, that is the Bible itself. I've got to constantly be learning. I met a preacher when I first moved to Philadelphia, Mississippi. He came and he was a great guy. I got to know him, got to love him. But one of the first things he told me, he said, oh, you're new in there? Yeah, I'm new in there. Mine, I've been preaching 30 years, and I'll tell you what, it gets easier. I don't hardly have to study anymore. I'm sad for that guy. Got to be learning. Be ready always to give an answer. That is to be willing to take a stand for something. Of the reason the hope is winning you with meekness and fear. That's your lifestyle. That's the way you live. That's not just what you say, but what you do. And in the context, do this research on your own as well. Look at 1 Peter 3:15 in context. Backing up the page there around verse 11 and 12, these people were being torn to pieces. They were absolutely, as Jesus said they would be, they were hated of all men for his name's sake. And those who came and asked questions, they weren't asking for honest truth. They were asking at a matter of spite. They had taken their houses, their livelihoods, they had put to death and slaughtered their own family members of Christians. And then they said, now tell us this. How do you handle that? Have to love them. Not accept their sin and call upon anyone to remain in that love is calling people out of that. Who's going to love the homosexual if I don't? Who's been taught to love better than I have? No one but God's child. Who's going to love the adulterer? Who's going to love the abortionist? Who's going to love them? You can name off anything that repulses us or could. Who's going to teach them? Who's going to lead them toward God? Will the government do it? Hollywood? Maybe, maybe the universities will lead them down the right path? You know, maybe they'll stumble across something in their secular reading and their advancement of life that will show them the way. It has to be me. And you, you could point very well at yourself and should. It has to be me. And if I'm going to earnestly contend for the faith... I must. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, just as applies with this or any other possible potential sin, no matter how we grade it, the sin is sin. And the answer to that sin has always been since the time of the cross, the very blood of Jesus. Upon that cross he was crucified. Upon that cross you and I were selected to be saved through the faith and obedience to his will. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, the very best opportunity to be washed, to be sanctified, and to be justified is right now tonight at 7.55 in Oneonta, Alabama, inside of these four walls. That's your best opportunity you will have to that moment.
If you're here tonight and you're more like I am and, and you're a Christian, you've been in one for however many years, you could stack that up. And, and anything has stood in your way, anything has divided you sin-wise, there's but one way to come back. To be willing to repent of those things, that is to change. Turn away from that sin and toward God. Confess that sin to Him and pray for Him or allow your brethren to do the same. We would love to assist in that way. The thing about that is, again, the opportunity that is available is the one we have. The one that you're planning for later may not ever exist. If you're here tonight, the opportunity is available. Maybe your sin is more like mine. Just taking the sin of this world and being so repulsed by it that I hate it and I want to claim, well, I hate it because God hates it. No, I hate it because I really don't understand or love people. And maybe the love I need to have for them is to help them with that and to assist them in pulling them from that and to allow this book right here, God's Word, to do that and be willing to love them enough to tell them the truth in love. That's the biblical approach. The invitation is open for whatever reason. If we can assist you, why not choose now? Why together we stand and even as we sing?